Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is The Road to St. Helena. Napoleon's Enemies at Home and Abroad by Alan Forrest from the issue of October the 28th, 2022. Alan Forrest is editor, with Peter Hicks, of the Cambridge History of the Napoleonic Wars, Volume 3. Experience, Culture and Memory, published in 2022. All Empires End The nemesis that almost inevitably follows the years of hubris is one of the reasons they continue to fascinate us, whether as historians or as citizens reflecting on the decline of an imperial past. They fascinated Napoleon, too, as he read widely in histories of past empires, those of Persia and Egypt, Greece and Rome, as well as of the Franks or of Byzantium. He routinely compared his own empire with those of the ancient world, and his military campaigns with Alexander the Great's or Hannibal's, just as he drew on the legal and administrative precedents that previous emperors had set. As he grew older, he looked increasingly to an uncertain future. With his health starting to fail, the future of family and dynasty became his consuming concerns. His family was increasingly dysfunctional, as his relations with his brothers disintegrated, and his need for an heir became ever more urgent. The birth of that heir, his son Napoleon Francois, in 1811, would mark a turning point in his life and a turning point, too, in the life of the empire. It heralded, said Michael Brewers, the birth of a revamped imperial system, one that was highly centralised on the Roman model, and marked a symbolic end to the Carolingian system of a federation of satellite states. Napoleon's meteoric rise to power and the glory years of European expansion were the subjects of the first two volumes of Brewer's vivid and analytical biography of the Emperor, Soldier of Destiny, 1769-1805, to published in 2014, and The Spirit of the Age, 1805-1810, to published in 2018. Now we have the third panel of the triptych, discussing the decline and fall that Napoleon knew must come, but which he continued to believe that his genius could deflect. 
Things would, as we know, end badly, both for him and for the empire he had so painstakingly created. By 1814, his armies were defeated. France itself was invaded, and he was forced to abdicate and to accept what he considered a humiliating peace. After his escape from Elba the following year, and the giddy adventure of the Hundred Days, worse would follow. The man who had ruled a continent was condemned to live out his final years as Britain's prisoner on Santa Elena, sick, bored, and increasingly irrelevant, howling into the South Atlantic winds as he sought to establish his place in history. In 1823, Lacasse's memorial brought to an eager European readership the Emperor's version of events, what might today be termed his truth, a carefully pitched narrative that would appeal to his many disciples. Since 2000, the bicentennial of the Empire has resulted in another outpouring of writings, including several full-scale biographies and research monographs on which Broers has been able to draw. It has also led to the publication by the Fondation Napoleon in Paris of Napoleon's correspondence in fifteen carefully researched volumes, bringing together documents that were previously widely scattered and providing a treasure trove for Napoleonic scholars everywhere. Brower's work is among the first to be able to make extensive use of this correspondence, not least in this final volume, where it allows him to offer new insights into the Emperor's thinking during his final years in power. Napoleon remains a divisive figure both in France, where Republicans and Royalists alike condemn his seizure of power, and in the nations pitted against him during nearly a quarter of a century of war. Too often he has elicited either unquestioning admiration or undiluted hatred from his biographers, with some seeing him as a peerless god of war, others as a despotic usurper responsible for murderous crimes. Broers is a refreshing exception here, for though he has a certain empathy for Napoleon, and does not conceal his admiration for his civic achievements, especially the administrative and judicial reforms he imposed across his empire, this is no hagiography. Again and again he stands back from the events he is discussing, weighing the benefits of reform and modernization against the human costs of invasion and war. He is careful to divorce fact from myth, a challenging task when dealing with someone who, for most of his career, showed himself to be a master propagandist, turning defeats into victories, claiming popular support where there was none, and manipulating statistics to win over doubters at home. And though he gives due weight to personal and family matters, Roas is at least as interested in the evolution of the empire as he is in the personality of an individual. He brings to his work the fruits of a lifetime spent studying that empire, and he is, more perhaps than anyone writing today, steeped in its culture, which he understands all the better for having viewed it from outside France, from the vantage point of the territories Napoleon invaded or annexed across the continent. This volume provides a rigorous analysis of its demise. That demise he dates from the summer of 1811. The period of transformative reforms, such as the implementation of the Penal Code, which he had rushed back from the army to Paris to oversee, was largely complete. The empire had reached its zenith, with its territory expanded to include about 130 departments and a cluster of kingdoms and principalities. His domestic life seemed more settled, and he had an heir on the way with his new wife, Marie-Louise, the daughter of the Austrian emperor. 
Yet after that summer, his fortunes seemed to go into reverse, even as his goals became increasingly ambitious, or, as many saw them, delusional. His policy became dominated by the pursuit of war, in Spain, in Germany, in Russia. Yet the years of spectacular victories and triumphant military campaigns that had sustained him before were over. At the same time, he became obsessive in his desire to defeat Britain, to destroy British commercial dominance, and to undermine its supremacy at sea. The great empire now covered much of the continent, yet in reality, as Broers says, it was born of exasperation, disillusion, and ultimately of weakness. Indeed, he goes further, insisting that its geography was really a testimony to British power, power that was all the more enraging to Napoleon for being indirect, economic and financial, as much as naval. That financial power allowed Britain to provide subsidies to continental allies, and pay for troops to fight against him, and to consolidate alliances with other powers, at a time when Napoleon had no option but to conscript more soldiers from France and the lands he controlled. With his armies already pinned down in Spain and Portugal, he now faced various combinations of Austrians, Prussians and Russians in Central Europe, and struggled to impose his continental system, which forbade trade with the British, in the Hansa ports and across the Baltic. To make matters worse, he could no longer depend on the kings within his empire, the model vassals he had appointed to carry out his will, and to supply him with the soldiers, horses and tax revenues he needed to make war. Across Europe, the suspicion remained that Napoleon would always sacrifice the interests of others to protect France and its borderlands. The balance of power in Europe was changing. Militarily, the other powers had strengthened their forces since Napoleon's decisive victories at Jena and Austerlitz. They had appointed able army commanders, who could often read and counter Napoleon's tactics, and their rulers had concluded, after the treaties imposed on them at Tilsit, where Prussia was stripped of about half of its territory, that the French emperor was not a man with whom they could negotiate, and that they had no choice but to fight on. Diplomatically, too, Europe's kings and emperors were increasingly persuaded that it was in their common interest to defeat the French, since without victory there could be no peace. Britain, which was finally involved in a land war with Napoleon in the Iberian Peninsula, played an increasing role in the conflict through a naval blockade of French ports and substantial subsidies to European rulers to send troops to fight in the Allied cause. Napoleon's obsessive insistence on enforcing his continental system to break British morale and destroy the financial power of the city prodded a number of rulers in northern Europe to make common cause against the French. His attempt to strangle neutral commerce with Britain proved a double-edged sword that made others realise the price they were expected to pay for his favour. If there was one country in Europe that did put its trust in Napoleon, it was Poland, which now, reconstituted as the Duchy of Warsaw, would give enthusiastic support to the empire. Of course, the Poles had their own reasons for aligning with the French. Their country had been partitioned in the 1790s, and they saw Napoleon as a means to achieve the independence they craved. But their loyalty was never in doubt, and they provided him with more than 100,000 troops, including some of the finest in the Grande Army. Napoleon was unwavering in his praise of their courage and fighting quality, and saw the duchy as a vital cog in imperial expansion. 
but it is questionable whether his commitment to the Polish cause was a source of strength or weakness. Broers, for one, counsels caution. Of all the frontier zones of Napoleon's empire, he says, none carried the potential for catastrophe more than the Duchy of Warsaw. Initially, it may have served the useful purpose of providing the stick with which to beat the Habsburgs. But it also pushed him into war with Russia, a war for which, unknown to Napoleon, Alexander I had been quietly preparing since 1808. The trigger was Alexander's refusal in 1810 to enforce the continental system, which threatened to destroy Russia's Baltic trade. Napoleon interpreted this, as he so often did, as an unforgivable personal betrayal. The consequence was what was surely Napoleon's most crucial strategic error, his decision to send an army of nearly 700,000 men onto Russian soil, in a bid to humiliate Alexander. The campaign was a disaster, not only because his army was caught in the Russian winter. Napoleon misjudged the Tsar, but he also misjudged the quality of the Russian commanders and the deep patriotism of the Russian people. At Borodino, he would discover something of their spirit of self-sacrifice, in what Adam Zomoysky has called the greatest massacre in recorded history. And as his men dragged themselves back to Smolensk, they were subjected to morale-sapping attacks by snipers and Cossack horsemen. Napoleon's army was in tatters, and if, on his return to France, he managed to conscript a new one for the 1813 campaigning season, his soldiers were largely raw and inexperienced, while the losses he had suffered of officers, seasoned troops and horses proved impossible to make good. Though he recovered sufficiently to defeat the army of Bohemia at Dresden in August, that would be his last significant success. His army would be crushed decisively in October, in the defining battle of the Napoleonic Wars, the Battle of the Nations in the suburbs of Leipzig. Broers is excellent on war, describing battles in broad brushstrokes, while drawing on memoirs to add colour and immediacy to the text. But winning wars is about diplomacy as well as fighting. It calls for skilful diplomats as well as commanders in the field, men who know how to conduct deals and make concessions. And the final months of the empire became an entangled story of war and diplomacy, conflict and negotiation. Napoleon seldom saw the need for compromise, even in the face of defeat. And in the empire's chaotic endgame, he showed extraordinary intransigence, as he rejected the chance to save something of France's territorial gains, insisting on the survival of his empire and the succession rights of his baby son. Diplomacy would prove critical to the outcome of the conflict and to the future of the regime, with the victorious allies determining questions such as France's post-war frontiers, the Bourbon Restoration, and the fate of Napoleon and the Bonaparte family. It was not always Napoleon's strongest suit. He tended to underestimate his opponents, and too readily resorted to threats and bullying in his attempts to get his own way. As success eluded him on the battlefield, and as the Allies took the conflict onto French territory, he found himself forced to rely more on others, on ministers such as Talleyrand, who by the final phase of the Empire had their own agendas, and were prepared to betray him. They too had a part to play in ending the Empire, and in determining the outcome of this epic tale of decline and fall. Though war had come to dominate imperial politics, Napoleon repeatedly claimed that it was merely a means to an end. His real goal, 
he suggested, was peace, and with it the establishment of a secure and powerful empire that could salvage something from what he regarded as the divisive anarchy of the First Republic. Like much of what he said and wrote, this may be misleading or simply untrue. Indeed, the very idea of Napoleon at peace, the title of William Doyle's latest study, may seem rather startling to British readers more accustomed to seeing him portrayed in the Prince of James Gilray or Thomas Rowlandson as a usurper and warmonger. But Doyle is not suggesting that Napoleon was a man of peace, nor is his book about Napoleon's long-term domestic achievements, from educational reform to the code, of which he is justly proud. It is a discussion of the short period during the consulate in 1802 to 1803 when France was not at war, and when Napoleon could turn to other priorities and address the conundrum summed up in the book's subtitle, How to End a Revolution. Historians have long puzzled over quite what Napoleon meant when he told the French people in 1800 that the revolution was over, whether he meant that its goals had been achieved, or more prosaically, that violence and constant change must stop. Did he seek to consolidate, or to reverse the gains it had brought to the French people? He certainly had no brief for those wanting the return of the Bourbons or the social order of the Anxian regime. But he also rejected the constitutionalism of the Republic. He was a soldier at heart, a man of order, defensive of central authority, suspicious of crowds and popular politics. The problem was, of course, that to obtain the sort of peace he could accept, he first had to win the war, or at least to put himself in a strong bargaining position for the peace that would follow. I want peace, he reflected, as much to establish the present French government as to save the world from chaos. He achieved that peace by the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, but then immediately set about strengthening his forces, drilling his troops, and building a massed army on the Channel coast, in preparation for the next conflict. Unsurprisingly, few of his enemies saw the treaty as anything other than a short truce in the fighting. The British, in particular, would take some convincing that Napoleon really was at peace. But he saw it as a way to end the revolutionary wars that were one part of the divisive legacy of the First Republic. The others were religion and monarchy. Doyle argues that during the consulate he largely succeeded in resolving both these issues, by forging peace with the Church and, more controversially, perhaps, by making himself a monarch. It is true that he did not talk of himself as a king, except later in Italy. But by then he was an emperor, making and unmaking kings at will. Napoleon was no democrat, and he demanded strong executive powers, and an end to the constitutional turmoil of the 1790s. He expressed contempt for legislative bodies, and did not hesitate to dismantle the democratic reforms of the revolutionary years. He also set out to reverse the revolution's assault on the Catholic Church, which had alienated a substantial part of the population, and fueled civil war in the West. Abroad, it had mobilised much of Catholic Europe against France, so that making peace with Rome had become a political priority that the First Consul was determined to achieve on his terms. The resulting concordat was not for Napoleon a question of Christian faith, he had none, but a political expedient to bring non-jurors to heel. While gaining papal acceptance of the loss of church properties, sold off as Biar Nationaux, had the added benefit of bringing reassurance to their purchasers. The Concordat would help to maintain social harmony, 
and when coupled with other reforms, to bring royalists back into the fold, end the revolt in the Vendée, enforce conscription, and hunt down brigands and insurgents. It was, as was usual with Napoleon, about politics. Ending the revolution meant not a move back to the archaism of the past, but the maintenance of stability, and an end to the destructive cycle of violence that the revolution had unleashed. William Doyle's study is at once succinct and scholarly, and it is as much about the effects of the revolution as about the measures taken by the consulate. It analyses a short but critical period when Napoleon deployed his considerable strategic skills to destroy a different enemy, the division and the discord that he had inherited from the Republic. At home, he achieved considerable success in curbing political extremes, whether of Jacobins or of Royalists, though this was more often achieved by robust policing and harsh justice than through consent. In the colonies, on the other hand, as the epilogue to this book acknowledges, he achieved far less. It is harder to identify a consistent policy in these years, ending as they did with the loss of Saint-Domingue and the loss of Louisiana to the United States. This, as Napoleon would admit, on St. Helena, in a rare moment of self-criticism, was a political and economic blunder. The greatest administrative mistake I ever made. You've been listening to the TLS. This was The Road to St. Helena, Napoleon's Enemies at Home and Abroad, by Alan Forrest, from the issue of October the 28th, 2022. It was read by Martin Buchanan for Noah. <laughs>